in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Moolah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money. It's the season seven finale. And our official Bad With Money Pride episode. Happy Pride, everyone. And happy Gemini season from me, 
a queer Gemini. Happy also, corporations want to sponsor my Instagram account for the month and I'm happy to let them because someone should be paying me to be gay. I've been doing it for free for most of my life. I'm kidding. Sort of. That's because this episode is about the LGBTQ economy, which to me is an interesting concept because my queerness is sort of defined by living outside the normative structures of the world, largely outside of capitalism. So coming at queerness from the perspective of convincing the straights and corporations and CEOs that we deserve rights because we can make them money kind of makes me want to hurl. Gay marriage as an economy booster, hiring discrimination against trans people as bad corporate practice, not morally, but financially. (sighs) I'm tired, you guys. But the community is not a monolith, and that's a good thing. For Pride season, I wanted to talk to someone who researches and advocates LGBT equality within an economic framework. So our guest this week is Professor Lee Badgett, who studies just that. She's a professor of economics and co-director of the Center for Employment Equity at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She studies economic inequality for LGBTQ people, wage gaps, employment discrimination, poverty, and the cost of homophobia and transphobia to economies. Her latest book is called The Economic Case for LGBT Equality, Why Fair and Equal Treatment Benefits Us All, which came out last year. Badgett's an expert. She testified at the Prop 8 hearing in San Francisco for Freddie Mercury's sake. I hate that this has to be a category of study, but I understand that someone has to do it. There's a lot of research there. It makes sense to arm ourselves with whatever data and facts we need to thrive in this dystopian nightmare that hates us. And Lee Badgett has got the armor. So Lee, can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm an economist, which always sounds a little scary. I teach economics and public policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and do work at the Williams Institute at UCLA. And I am very interested in LGBT inequality. Um, So I've been studying that for a few decades now and am also very interested in how we end that inequality, how we move LGBT people closer to the same kind of economic status as other people. So how did you come into studying specifically queerness, zeroing in on that as the topic? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I started out in graduate school and early in my career studying race and sex discrimination. And that was a, a nice kind of training and understanding to be able to shift over into studying LGBT people. But the reason I got into this um, is literally I was sitting one day in a library reading an article in the Wall Street Journal about how affluent gay people are. Back then it was just gay men, basically, that they were talking about. And gay people take fancy vacations, really nice cars, beautiful homes, good jobs, lots of education. And I thought, well, wait a minute. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm a lesbian. I, this, this does not characterize the people that I know. And secondly, you know, what I know from studying race and sex discrimination is that that makes you worse off. It does not make you better off. So I was immediately suspicious of this idea. And that's kind of what drew me in was having this this question about it. Is uh, is this all Will and Grace's fault or? (laughs) (laughs) You know, yes, it kind of is, I think, in a lot of ways. 
I think for one thing, you know, the media is good at at propagating stereotypes. But there's it's interesting because there's actually at least a couple of other things that have contributed to this. One is marketing efforts to the LGBT community. Back in the day when this all began, we saw a lot of surveys of people who read gay newspapers who were members of organizations and those folks all looked pretty affluent, but that's just because people who read newspapers tend to have higher levels of education and they they have more income. So there's that piece of it. And at the same time, that marketing effort was getting heated up. We started to see right-wing groups using this research very effectively, I think, to say, hey, this doesn't look like a disadvantaged minority. You know, this is not a group that's faced the same kind of challenges that other, you know, that people of color have faced or that women have faced. This is a group that's doing pretty well on their own. So why do we need to change policies, you know? Yeah, God forbid there's any sort of intersectionality where there might be gay people of color or... (laughs) So all of this research was done about like white, gay men. And the assumption was that because it's two male incomes and no children, what years was this myth most common? It heated up a lot in the 90s as, you know, gay visibility rose, the the political movement rose. And because it was, you know, still then it was pretty just gay. And when we talk about gay, we mostly meant gay men back then and white gay men, of course, that when when the surveys were mostly talking to to that particular demographic, that's going to help boost the economic status of people overall, even if they are gay. But the the interesting thing for me was to go after and find some better data that was less gay, male-centric, that had a you know, broader representation of men and women, of people of color and white people. We're still working on the transgender part of the community to get good data on them on economic status. But, but anyway, so as the data started to emerge in the 90s, and even since then, we've, we've started to see very similar patterns for gay and bisexual men, regardless of race, which is that they are earning less than Mm -hmm. straight men do, who have similar kinds of characteristics. One of my colleagues who looked at a whole bunch of surveys a few years ago, averaged that gap, that gay by male wage gap, and it was about 11% across a lot Mm -hmm. of different studies in the US. And in fact, actually, we see this pattern all over the world. What has the research shown about queer women or queer AFAB people or anyone other than white gay men Because I think there was a different stereotype, at least what I've heard from people, which has always been shocking to me. And maybe it is true. I don't know. It was like lesbians don't spend money. That's what I've always heard. (laughs) Wow, that's crazy. Everybody spends money, right? If you've got it, you spend it. That's what keeps the economy going. Yeah, it's that that same kind of focus on the lesbian market has never been as strong, I think, as for the, the gay male market. But it's interesting because lesbians have sort of a somewhat different stereotype, maybe, and it leads to a different pattern economically. If you compare lesbian and bisexual women to heterosexual women, the lesbian and bi women actually earn more. And so that's just the opposite, really, for for men. I mean, the first thing I always say when I say that, though, is that well, both lesbian and bi women and straight women all earn less than the gay and straight men, right? So mm-hmm. the, the gender gap is really playing a big role there. And that's just what pushes heterosexual women's earnings way down. 
So for a long time, we've seen this gap. Uh, some people call it the lesbian advantage. Interestingly, <laughs> that seems to be going away. So uh, so uh, some colleagues and I just did this study that came out just like last month or two. Um, and we looked at the, that gay male wage gap and we looked at the lesbian advantage and the gay male wage gap seems to be staying pretty constant over the last 20 years. It has not gone away. And for the lesbian advantage, though, that has gone away. And we're not really sure why. It might be that lesbians maybe have become more visible. And so discrimination might be happening more. Uh, and so they're not doing as well as they used to. Or it might just be that heterosexual women are doing better than they used to. And we think one reason for that 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 positive gap, that advantage, is that lesbians aren't expecting a man to support them ever, right? So they mm -hmm. uh, they can't count on that. Um, they're going to be in partnerships with, with other women. So that in itself just adds two gender gaps together. So we know that lesbians work more hours a week and they work, they're more likely to work in the paid labor force. They work more weeks of the year. So all those things tend to push their their earnings up compared to straight women. And that's really the biggest difference, I think, for, for lesbians. Does it have to do with job choice in all regards? Uh, maybe some, maybe some. There's definitely some occupational segregation that we see. I mean, we're used to seeing that for you know men and women more generally. And in the data where we have like lots of people so we can see where they end up uh, in terms of in terms of their occupations, we do see lesbians going into jobs that have more men in them. And those are the ones that get paid more. So, mm -hmm. so that does help to some extent for lesbians and vice versa for gay men, by the way, the, the gay and bisexual men are more likely to go into jobs with that have more women in them. Still, you know, both groups are still mostly in jobs with the same, you know, people with the same sex or the same gender identity. They're just a little bit less segregated in that way than straight people are. So that might make a little bit of a difference. That's so interesting. Yeah. So before I do interviews, I try to write down my thoughts and I put together like an introduction for the episode and and then I tweak it based on, you know, the interview. And I I understand that like somebody has to study this, but it was bumming me out the idea of trying to gain equality by having to use capitalist data and facts. Hmm. And like, I wonder if you had ever thought of that or if you purely see it as like, no, this is practical. This is the way to gain equality is to present businesses and straight people with numbers. I do think it's an important strategy. And it's one that I've used a lot. I've argued we have evidence that there's inequality. That's a reason for public policies that address that. And I think that is really important. I think my hesitation about it is less about the, you know, kind of capitalist nature of the data. Because I think we can use, I think markets can, market forces can be used to help support LGBT people in terms of equality. I think the thing that I worry about is that it makes, that it... It erases the people who are doing relatively well. It, it, it leaves out the resilience that people have, that they learn to face discrimination, they learn to manage it, they figure out ways to cope with the stresses that come along with it. And I think that kind of resilience is a, 
better model for us, those of us who are LGBT, than thinking about, you know, the people who are poor or, uh, you know, have uh, smaller bank accounts because of the effects of discrimination. I think, you know, we want to, you know, avoid just being victims, basically. I guess that's how a lot of people put it. So that that's kind of my only hesitation there. And so I, I've more recently actually been trying to do more work on ways to think about uh, raising the number of economic opportunities that people have, you know, for good jobs, for becoming entrepreneurs, for figuring out ways to have a good standard of living, basically. So that's kind of been my my most recent focus. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense that this would need to be an area of study, obviously. And I mean, I've seen your work going back decades, like you said. You know, it's just interesting to me to be like, hey, companies, like employment discrimination based on sexuality and gender is actually bad for your bottom line rather than being like, mm-hmm. it's morally wrong. Yeah. Do you find that that presenting it as bad for the bottom line has, has more of an impact? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure which has more of an impact overall in society, but I think both of those are arguments that can go together very well. Some people are going to be convinced by one and some by the other. I think if you think for a second about, say, an employer, a company is run by people. And those people often will have a sense of what the right thing to do is, and they might want to do that. And often we do hear people who have heard from their LGBT employees that they need, you know, stronger policies, stronger efforts to reduce discrimination, more equal benefits, whatever the issue is. And they'll say, okay, I get that. That's the right thing to do. I'm going to do that. But sometimes, you know, they have to see that there's a good reason for it. Maybe they're worried about their shareholders who are going to not want their business that they're part owner of just doing something because it's got some sort of, you know, touchy feely value. Maybe that's how they see it. But, but if you can say it also will reduce turnover of our employees and that saves us money. It also, you know, allows us to make a clear case for LGBT consumers and that increases our revenue. It also helps make our existing workforce more productive. That's something that's good for our bottom line too. So if you can say all of those things and choose your audience, whatever they need to hear, you know, I think you've got just a much firmer foundation for, for the ideas that you need to make change. Well, how do you present the cost of homophobia and transphobia? Like, how does one present to a company what they might lose and to an economy what it might lose? The case for any, for a company is a little bit like what I was just saying. It's kind of focusing on the workforce, being able to recruit and retain a, a good workforce and make them more productive. And I think, you know, businesses actually came up with that. People within the context of businesses developed that argument and they've used it pretty widely. What I like to do that was to is to expand it, to take it and say, yeah, it's not just businesses that benefit, but it's really everybody in an economy. Because we all benefit when our economy is stronger. Um, or at least we I, should take that back. We have at least the potential for all benefiting. You know, we have a big inequality problem in the U.S. and and I don't want to minimize that. But, you know, if the pie is getting bigger, then in theory, everybody's slice can be a little bit bigger. So that's the strategy that we've had for a long time for making our economy more inclusive, as a matter of fact. So I make the argument that homophobia and transphobia are, are 
harmful to LGBT people as individuals. And, you know, there's, we've already talked about a lot of that evidence. It's harmful economically. And I think there's very strong evidence that it's very harmful to people's health. We have many health disparities that have been identified in other kinds of research. So LGBT people have higher levels of anxiety and depression, of thinking about suicide, um, of substance use. And, and all these things have been shown to be related not to something that's inherently wrong with LGBT people, but it's really about the world that we live in that's that's challenging, that has you know stigma for that uh, gets uh, deployed against us. So there's health effects. There's lots of other kinds of effects in the book that I wrote that just came out in paperback recently. There is a whole discussion about education. People face bullying in schools, uh, same, mm-hmm. sometimes discrimination from teachers. And that holds them back. It makes them more likely to drop out of school. It makes them, their grades are lower. They have, you know, mental health issues potentially. And it makes the whole school a worse place to learn. Schools that have a lot of bullying in general are places where people don't do as well on test scores. So I think it has an effect in all those ways of holding back people in terms of health, in terms of the skills and education they can get, in terms of what they can do in the workplace, and all those things hold back the economy. It, it reduces what LGBT people are able to contribute to the economy, and that's going to be bad for everybody. You're talking about like filling in the gaps in terms of having more workers, or in my mind, I was picturing like a company wanting to make advertising to LGBTQ people, but not knowing how to how to do that or how to market to a certain group to broaden their customer base. Like what are some economic gaps that could be filled by, you know, eliminating homophobia and transphobia in the in the workforce? It's two main things that I focus on. One is about being able to work more, like you were just saying, being able to contribute more time to the labor force, but also when we're there to be to be more productive. If we're if we don't have to worry about somebody finding out that we're LGBT and then discriminating against us, you know, we can maybe develop stronger relationships with our coworkers. We may be less stressed by external forces and can can be more focused on the work that we do, uh, just as a couple of examples. I think the other thing is that we have the potential for creating new businesses. So I think about it more from the perspective of producing goods and services than I think about you know selling to the LGBT community. So that part of the business case has been less a little bit less persuasive for me, I will say. And I just want to tell you right now, you're hearing our yard crew who usually <laughs> shows up on Thursdays. Um, for some, oh, they came today, I guess, because of the holiday weekend. So I'm sorry about that. They will move on to the backyard very, very soon. <laughs> it's an example of lesbians spending money in the local economy to hire people to come cut our, cut our grass. <laughs> <laughs> and you've proven them all wrong. That's right. Yeah. It would be funny if you were like, and our lawn cutters are also lesbians. Thank you so much. My point has been made. So. Yeah. Well, we have not actually. We had a lesbian dentist for a long time. Our mayor was yeah. a lesbian. We had a lesbian house <laughs> painter who did a lot of stuff for us. Of course. So you were talking about starting new businesses. What do you mean by that? Like creating more protections or more ability for queer people to start their own companies? Yeah, there are people who are working on that. I mean, I think for some people, 
having your own business might be a way to avoid discrimination, you know, to kind of say, well, I'll be my own boss and I won't have to worry about it so much. And for other people, they just, they have an idea they want to act on sort of, I don't think we know a whole lot about people's motivations, but there are groups that are trying to help entrepreneurs with the skills that they need for starting new businesses. There are people trying to help find funding, angel investing. There's a group called Gangels. Um, there, uh, there's a group called uh, Startout that's that's doing a lot of the other kind of work. So there are, there are some groups in the U.S. that are doing that. It's interesting because this has become one of the things, one of the strategies that people are starting to talk about globally, even, especially in places where laws and, and local norms are pretty hostile to LGBT people. You know, finding a job can be really tough, but there are groups that are out there in at least a few different places now who are saying, well, how about a, a micro loan, a small micro loan to help you start up a, a small business that will give you more control over your life and will provide for better income? Or how about, uh, you know, an investment by some outside investors who can provide what you need to have even a bigger business? There, there's, there are groups working on these issues right now in different parts of the world. This is kind of an interesting way of thinking about how, how economies and having access to economic opportunities can make a difference in people's lives, you know, individually because they have higher incomes, but it also, you know, it can also improve how, uh, how their local cultures see LGBT people. Some of the people in these programs have reported that their family members who were, you know, not at all happy to have an LGB or T child were suddenly much nicer to them once they started bringing in economic resources into the family. Oh, um, girl, they're, I don't know if you watch Drag Race, but my roommate is a trans woman and she and I are obsessed with the fact that the parents will come on the finale and be like, I didn't have such a good relationship with my kid because they were queer. But like now that I see that they can be successful, like all of a sudden the family is healed. And my roommate and I are like, <laughs> OK, I'm sorry. So you were not you like as long as this person is the best drag queen, then it's totally fine all of a sudden. Like it's so many parents come on and they're like, I just was worried that they wouldn't be able to make a living. But now that I see that they're rich and famous, suddenly I'm like back in their life and we hate it. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's not the warm and fuzzy kind of uh, reconciliation that we always want to see. But, you know, maybe it's, it's so a true. conversation starter. Maybe it will help. Who knows? But I know what you mean. You're saying it's true. You're saying it's like a thing that that has been studied that that it helps if the queer person is able to, like, succeed with a job or financially? Well, it's not so much research at a broad scale. It's more, it's a little bit more anecdotal from some of these programs that I've been studying where people report this, you know, I don't know that that's, you know, this, but this is something that actually has, has been important for thinking about gender equality more broadly, you know, for cisgender women too, is providing them with resources that give them more bargaining power in the households. You know, we have this, warm and fuzzy image about families like everybody just does everything out of love but you know that's not really the way it is all the time yeah <laughs> and, uh, and so you know the, the financial conditions of people can make a big difference in terms of how other people treat them you know so it, that's been a strategy in a lot of development programs trying to increase economic empowerment of women around the world you also have written about how 
gay marriage is good for society. What are some of the ways that you've studied or found that to be the case? Yeah, there there definitely have been studies that suggest that the, having the ability to marry has been good for same-sex couples in lots of ways. It's a way to signal commitment. And it looks like couples who either have that commitment either through just being together for a long time or through going through marriage tend to last longer as, as couples. I did a study in the Netherlands, which is the first country that allowed same-sex couples to marry back in 2001. I talked to a lot of people who said that their their families treated their partners differently once they got married right. because it, it makes it really clear this person's a family member. This is not just the girlfriend or the boyfriend. You know, this person somebody who's in the family. This is a person who will have a relationship, who will buy Christmas presents for. You know, this is the person that we will invite to family events. This is the person whose relationship might last even if something horrible were to happen to the to the to the child of that in that family, the LGBT person who's part of the family originally, if they were to die, the, the partner they're married to might still be considered, you know, a family member. So it, it's a, a very powerful social status. This kind of took me a little bit outside of economics, to be honest, because in economics, you know, it's all, it's like, it's a contract. Marriage is a contract, but it has much more power than that symbolically and culturally. It makes me think of Pete Buttigieg running for office and how quickly he married his husband. My theory is, and I'm sure other people too, to present like a family man image to run for president, right? Like I'm gay, but I'm married and I have a husband and a dog and we're just like you. And like the way that it looks outwardly allows for advancement. That was my theory. Mm -hmm. You know, I think well, he, if that was why he did it, he wouldn't be the first politician to do that, I think. No, of course. <laughs> it's interesting that gay people yeah. do that now too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. It is interesting. I teach young people at the university and, and every now and then somebody will tell me they're engaged to their same sex partner. And it's like, it's, it's that there's something about that that just strikes me as kind of, it's not jarring, but it just, it, I just think about that more than I even think about people actually getting married, that now there are all these other steps that the, the sociologists call these scripts for relationships that people have that are very different from what I grew up with. And, and I think it's, it's interesting, you know, it is, it is the power of, of inclusion into the existing institutions that we have. And it's, it's all for better and worse, right? Because there are certain things about marriage that, that are complicated and the marriage is in, people get divorces and, uh, you know, it's not, it's, well, now we not... contribute to the divorce economy. Yeah, right. <laughs> now you need another sofa, you know, another Exactly. <laughs> We're contributing to the marriage economy. We're doing weddings with the wedding industrial complex. And now we're paying uh, divorce attorneys. We're, do yeah. we're really contributing. Like, I, you know, you hear that stuff about like, oh, gay people throw huge weddings and then that money goes back into the economy as well. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Well, I made that argument a lot, you know, in the, mm -hmm. uh, in the states that were considering this because, you know, small businesses uh, live and die off of weddings and, uh, you know, florists and caterers and restaurants mm -hmm. and hotels. 
So that, you know, that is kind of a big deal. I mean, it is interesting. Most of the data that we have suggests that on average, same-sex couples spend less on weddings than different sex couples do. And there's something about that that makes me feel good. Like, okay, we're a little, we're a little smarter. We don't like go blow all of our savings or our parents' money or whatever it is on, on one day, you know, let's save a little bit for a down payment on a house or something like that. It's fascinating because I'm like so of two minds about it where I understand the fight for all of these things. And like we got gay marriage, we got all of these things. And, you know, I've, I've listened to interviews with Cleve Jones talking about how important marriage was when it came to AIDS and HIV because a couple could be together for years. And then when the partner died, the family could swoop in and take all the money and take all the property and people were left to destitute. And like there's a lot more to it than just sort of the flippant way I used to view it, which was like, we don't want it. Like we're, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial and it's like, that's the least of our worries or whatever, which in a way is like young people sort of taking, I think taking it for granted. But then I'm also like, how much of our humanity or our respectability or whatever is through trying to, to do what straight people are doing or fit in or succeed in this way that straight people view it as acceptable. And, you know, like you talked about following scripts and it's like, are we just following these like non-queer scripts? And like, it's just so, it's interesting talking to you because I feel like you really deal in reality. Do you feel that way about your work? Yes, I guess our economist reality people, I like to think that we are in some ways, in many ways. I guess the way that where I look at things might be a little bit different from yours, there may be a bunch of ways, but one in particular is just to acknowledge that LGBT people are very diverse. I've talked about racial diversity and gender diversity, but there's lots of other ways that we just, we have different kinds of goals in life. So I think that there are a lot of LGBT people who've really voted with their feet in a sense. They've said, we really want to get married. It's important to us. We have brothers and sisters who got married and it, made it, it was an important day in their lives and our family's life. And we just want to have that same that same opportunity. And then there, then there are those in our community who say, oh, that's a patriarchal institution. I'd never want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, let's not just imitate heterosexuals. And that's fine. You know, there's there, really there's room for everybody. Because you know what? Most people aren't married in the U.S. I mean, only, you know, about 50% of, of the population is uh, at any one point in time is married. This has become an option for people, for their family lives in the United States. I think that, you know, so people who who don't want to, don't need to. But, you know, the mm-hmm. other thing is too, and I can say this as someone of a certain age, is that, you know, as we get older, we recognize that our needs change, our legal needs might change. And I certainly know a lot of lesbian feminists who once would have said, I will never, ever get married. You know, they decide that it makes sense at a certain point in their lives or in their relationships. So I remember what the, the campaign was. It was about the freedom to marry. It wasn't about go sign up for a wedding. It was, <laughs> it was, let's at least have that option. So, so I think it has increased our freedom in that sense. How do you view the corporatization of pride? It is Pride Month. And, you know, I'm a queer influencer and there's like, we all joke, oh, can't wait for June when we make all of our money for the year. And then the corporations (laughs) completely forget about us. Yeah, you know, I think that is a hard one. I think I have sympathies with both sides. I do think that there are 
there's still a need to kind of keep our, our edge of we're not done. We still have a lot of work to do, you know, even with marriage equality and with non-discrimination laws, there's still many of us who lack safe homes, who lack income. We've got to keep working. And if there are things that are distracting to that, then, you know, there's an argument for removing them. You know, on the other side, I do think that, you know, the kind of the corporatization can represent two things. And it kind of depends really more on what you think is, is important. You know, we were talking earlier about how, how businesses kind of have been pushed by their employees to make changes. And they've, they found out ways, you know, that that's a good thing for them, you know, that business case piece, but you know, employees are saying, look, I work here. I want to be treated fairly. Mm -hmm. This is where I spent a huge part of my life. And they've worked, you know, their employee resource groups and big companies all across America who've worked to push their companies to do this. And those companies stand up for their LGBT employees every day in many places, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just on pride. There, there's always some pinkwashing for sure. But, but I think, you know, it acknowledges that important work that our community has done within workplaces. It's not, it's not all about rainbow flags and great music on your float. It's just acknowledging that this has been a really big site for change uh, in the United States in particular. Yeah, to hold the companies accountable, not just on pride, but like if you're going to have a float in the parade, then your policies and hiring and all of that should match. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. Yep. And I'm sure this is jarring for you, right? It was like in the 90s, there was didn't want to be any association with queerness. And then all of a sudden, it's like if a company doesn't have a pride campaign, like (laughs) everyone hates them. Yeah. Is that wild to you? It is actually, it is. It's it's really interesting, you know, to see the human rights campaign kind of tracks employers' policies. And so many of them have really excellent policies on paper. And, you know, we know that those aren't perfect, but they're at least they're on paper. And back in the 90s, it was kind of hard to imagine, you know, where we are today, I think. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And the business stuff, the businesses have been supportive in other ways, too. There are many businesses that spoke out in favor of marriage equality because they had already been pushed by their employees to recognize same-sex partners for domestic partner benefits. And it was not a big step for them to take that in the business case and and to say before our Supreme Court, we think you should allow same-sex couples to marry. And then they've done this in Ireland. They've done this in Taiwan. They've done this in Australia. They've gone to bat for the gay community, LGBT community on same-sex marriage. And now, you know, they're they're doing it also for a lot of these anti-trans bills. There were coalitions of companies that have sort of put the brakes on some of these bills in places like Texas, even some of the bathroom bills that were put out there a few years ago. Now, of course, with all the the bills around LGBT young people in the schools and about playing sports, there are several business, there, there are coalitions of businesses that have, that have pushed back on that, even though those aren't really workplace issues, not directly, but those are things that their employees care about. And in many ways, these employers have done what, what we talked about earlier. They said, this is the right thing to do. You know, this is not really just about our employees. This is about who we are as a company. It's the right thing to do to oppose these bills that will discriminate against young transgender people. And so we're going to stand up against it. And possibly win loyalty from the employees and customers. It all comes together to be like a good business decision, too. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they, they do pose it that way. I think, you know, as we get farther away from some of the core things around business decisions for employees, it's going to be a little harder. I mean, yes, maybe cons- LGBT consumers will reward those companies. But it's a lot of these companies don't sell direct to consumers. They sell to each other, their business to business, you know, so it's not the only thing that's out there. What I have actually studied one of those companies and the case study hasn't come out yet. But sometimes I feel like when I talk to people in these companies that are doing this work, they sound a lot more like activists than some of the activists I know. (laughs) Before I let you go, I'm wondering how important it is for queer people to support queer businesses or buy from other queer people and how that little economy works. That's a great question. And it's hard to define it. I think that, you know, when we think about the the old standbys, you know, it used to be you had to have some bars, you needed a bookstore, you needed a softball league, I don't know what you, know, what you needed locally. You know, things have changed. The markets change. Bookstores are really hard to, to sustain anymore. Even, you know, bars have become less of a a thing in the lesbian community, you know, they've they've kind of many of them have closed. People meet each other online. So things have really changed. So I think to the extent that places still matter, and, and I certainly think they still matter, if you want to, you know, go out to dinner or to an entertainment venue or something that's kind of, you know, recognizing that we as LGBT people might enjoy some things that are, you know, not as interesting to other people, whether it's a gay theme movie or a play or musician or whatever it is, the art spaces, all those things are things that I think we should actually try very hard to retain because that's in many ways still the the heart of communities. Those kinds of businesses do a lot for us, for our visibility and for creating our culture. That's like supporting ourselves, supporting each other. And, and I think there's still there's still a role for that. Not all customers are going to be non-discriminatory. So it's kind of up to us to help make up for that. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you and your book? I have a website, leebadgett.com, to talk about the book, which pulls together a lot of the strands of things that we've been talking about today. But it's been fun to, to put them in the larger cultural context. It was truthfully refreshing to speak to another queer person from a different generation about our different approaches to queerness. And to have such a a nuanced, long-form conversation. Too often, I've noticed that queer people tend to write off their own, especially those from older generations, for opinions and approaches that are outside of the liberation messaging du jour. Lee and I agree and disagree. Turns out gay people can do that and still be fighting for the same freedoms. Who knew? Thank you so much to everyone who called and wrote in this season and to all of our guests. This was an entirely women's season, completely by accident, but I'm proud of that fact because it shows that this little show, this little Bad With Money show, it exists in a big male, straight, cis world of finance, and it still manages to find less heard expert voices. They exist. They should be on every show, not just this one. You hear that? If you can find a straight cis white man to talk about something, you can find someone else to talk about that same topic. And it's been proven here on this show over and over again. So, happy Pride. I hope you feel free of expectations and I hope you love your queerness. Stay tuned for season eight coming soon. Welcome 
Welcome to Dear Gabby, the segment of the show where I read your emails, your reviews. There's some (laughs) funny ones coming up. Okay, so the first one is from Santa Bunny, and it says, Must listen. The podcast has amazing guests that introduce me to new topics and perspectives. I often find myself challenged to re-examine concepts that I thought I knew. I've been a listener from the start and I've even read the book. Oh, you've even read the book? You've done all the homework. It has evolved in a really amazing way. Check out the first few seasons for more practical advice you can apply to your own bank account and later seasons to learn all about the layers of the larger financial systems at play. Oh my God, they read my book. Yes, Bad With Money, the book, available now anywhere you get books. I prefer you get it from an indie bookstore or IndieBound. That's right. This podcast is also available in book form. It's the thing I'm most proud of, actually, writing that book. So if you would get it and read it, that would mean a lot to me. You can also get it at gabbydunn.com slash shop. Okay, here's a review from Quinn DeFinn. The headline is, we love to hear it. We all know how stressful the world seems these days. Bad with money helps me stay informed while not feeling too, too bad about the state of the world. Laughter is medicine and Gabby always provides. Also, I for one like to be... (laughs) Also, I for one like to be yelled at by my podcast hosts. I grew up in a family of five, so yelling while sharing information is basically a love language for me and then a purple heart. And then this one is followed up by... A five-star review from JessPlease42 that says, Kay, but why does she scream? Great content, but she has got to stop screaming. It hurts my ears. You win some, you lose some, folks. Bye! Done.